Hello again and welcome to part two of my discussion with Corey Gilschuster of Tel Aviv University and perhaps best known as the founder and creator of the Ask Project. In this segment, Corey tells us about two unique communities within Israeli society, namely the ultra-Orthodox Jews, who are also known as the Haredim, and the Druze, who are an ethno-religious Arab-Israeli community living in Galilee and the occupied Syrian Golan Heights. Corey outlines who the ultra-Orthodox and Druze are and how they maintain their identity within mainstream Israeli society. That brings me on to my next issue that became quite apparent within Israeli society in the last few weeks with the COVID-19 crisis. Arguments and discussions about why the COVID-19 virus was allowed to thrive for so long amongst ultra-Orthodox communities in particular, and the environs of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, reviving these arguments that have long been running about a state operating within a state, the right-wing governments pandering to their rabbis. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Where, where do I start with it? So first of all, I, I'll point out that Israeli culture from the beginning has has a tendency to be very live and let live meaning if you're doing something and it's not exactly against the law but it's kind of bending the law or it doesn't fit in with the, the the way most people see it they kind of allow it to happen there's this idea that okay you're living within the confines of of a society and even if you create your own systems of the way you want to live whether it's the school system or your economic systems it's okay. I mean, Lebanon's a little bit similar to that. When it came to COVID-19, what happened is, to explain to your listeners, is people were told to stop meeting in large groups. So, for example, I work at the university, and it, we couldn't, at first it couldn't be people more than, uh, groups of more than 100, and then it went down to 10, so therefore we couldn't have classes, so everything went online. And we were dealing with the ultra-Orthodox populations, ultra-Orthodox Jews, which is about 13% of the population of Israel, they tend to, they don't work, uh, most of them, some do, but most don't. They tend to study Torah. They study the Bible and the Talmud because their idea is they're working for God. They are, are bringing the Messiah to come. And they're being told that when you study in these large halls, you're studying with, you're not studying a couple of people, you're studying with tens of people, sometimes a lot more. Uh, you're praying with at least 10 people, sometimes a lot more. You live with people, sometimes 10 and even a lot more. There are some people with 16 children. And they did not believe that the virus was real. They, because they already see the state and the army as being something which is anti-Jewish and anti-religion uh, and anti-God. And because there was a whole history of trying to get the ultra-Orthodox population to be in the army or to take at least more social responsibilities, that again is going to used to be the live and let live, whereas the ultra-Orthodox never served in the army. And then some people said, well, why am I serving in the army? Why not them? That kind of thing. So there was a lot of paranoia, as happens in groups and conflict, about how uh, with the ultra-Orthodox seeing the Israeli secular or even the national religious as doing something against them and they didn't really believe it was real and then they started to have breakouts of coronavirus in their in jerusalem and in uh, b'nai brak in their neighborhoods and they government did something smart our minister of of health he is ultra orthodox himself yet he didn't do this until it, until there was a breakout they went to the, the rabbis because they don't listen to the government. They don't listen to what the news, they don't also, another thing I should mention, they don't listen to news. They don't have internet. They don't have newspapers. They don't, they have their own newspapers. They don't read mainstream news. They don't have, they have cell phones with no information on it. They are not allowed to go on the internet. They Is this the religious edicts? Are these actually their teachings within the community? 
Yes, because the it's, if you go into B'nai Brak or Jerusalem, there's signs everywhere saying the internet is evil. Um, do not go on the internet. They they're, they're cheating a little bit. I mean, I don't think I don't know if they're necessarily going onto porn, but they're they're definitely going onto some things on the internet for sure. And I know this from a lot of personal uh, people who in that community telling me things. But you can't admit it publicly. And the central idea is that the Western civilization and society is evil, and it's it's bringing ruin to the Jewish people. So this happens, and they believe that this is just another conspiracy. So what they did is they went back to the rabbis again many, many times, and the rabbis were convinced suddenly. And so the rabbis then tell their followers, so every person, if you live in this community, you have a rabbi. That's just the way it is. You have a rabbi, and you listen to your rabbi. And then you're like a soldier. So if your rabbi said you shouldn't go out and you should, we wouldn't have mass at that point, but you shouldn't go out into, into groups of, uh, large groups of people. And if you feel sick, you need to go to the hospital. Then they did it. And there were some rabbis who refused. And that's why they were paying the price. So it went to the point where they actually created a, not martial law, but they, they closed down neighborhoods and they put the army in neighborhoods where you couldn't get out of your own neighborhood if they had a high frequency of, of the virus. And they had the army going in and giving food to people, mostly old people, who were too afraid or couldn't go out, which was great. That's one great thing I got to say that we have an army, is that you can get them to do things, you can change what they from what they normally do to something which is actually really helpful, in my opinion. So in these neighborhoods, in these ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods, the rate of transmission is actually going down a lot. Oh, plus the government did something smart, is because there's no tourism in Israel, they use hotels. So if you are a family and three people have are positive of coronavirus, but you have 12 other people in the house, in these communities, this doesn't exist in secular communities, you were, at least the people who were sick were put in hotels. So at least they weren't all in the same small house transmitting their virus to everybody. So that's been very helpful. So that's one of the good things that's, um, that's happened with COVID-19 that the government has reacted somewhat well to. There's been a bunch of other issues where they haven't, but it, those are smaller things. Do you think this could encourage Haredim, that's the term they actually prefer, isn't it, rather than ultra-Orthodox? Mm -hmm. Could that encourage the, the ultra-Orthodox community to maybe cooperate with the state more? Will there be a change in mindset? Or maybe there have already been movements to... That's, that's the hope. That's the hope. Uh, that's what most secular people, that's what they say on the news. That's what people are talking about from person to person is now maybe they'll listen to us. Maybe they'll see we're not awful. Maybe they see that we're not trying to bring their downfall and they'll actually maybe not integrate, but at least not see secular society in Israel as somehow against them. Who knows? I, I'm a big believer that people are people. And uh, if there was a whole belief system in place before, the chances of it changing after, not likely. But who knows? Maybe. You never know. It'll all come down to, it, it's always a thing with leaders, right? So there's always, if there's enough leaders in the community who stop telling the stories of how the secular people are trying to, you know, make them not religious anymore, maybe that'll help. But there's always going to be some people who love their conspiracy theories and they love their, their um, it gives them a sense of identity. So they're going to keep going on with it. Uh, I mean, time will tell. I, I hope so. There was, uh, there was one of the things that being the Haredim going into the army, which I think is a good idea, was that at least they get integrated into Israeli society more. So one good thing about the army for people who are minorities, and actually I think Arab Israelis should absolutely serve in the army, uh, and I know many who do, it's not, it's not a lot, but some, 
because it's a great way to integrate into Israeli society and get trained in areas that are more difficult to get trained in. Because in the army, there's a lot of opportunities to do things that are more on the social work scale or more on uh, yeah, high tech. Most of our high tech actually comes through the army. So that's why I, and I, I didn't serve in the army. And I'm not a big fan of the Israeli Defense Force. But that's one thing. If I were an Arab Israeli or a Palestinian, I would say, yeah, I'll serve in the army. Could they serve without being in that combative role of having Yes, 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 you can. Absolutely. Yes, you can. There's no force into a combat role. Only 15% of... uh, This is just the draft, by the way. You're talking about the... the, It's a two-year conscription. Three years. Okay. It's almost three years now for men and two years for women. It's actually lessened a bit, but it's two and a half, I think, for men. Um, Yes. So, and plus there's this other area called uh, national service, which is sort of an out, you know, outgrowth of the of people who didn't want to serve in the army. And it's a way to serve your community. So you work in hospitals or you work in your community. And Arab Israelis thought it's just a bridge to the army. It isn't exactly. But I, I, I'm a big believer in everybody serving in the army, other than the people who most want to serve in the army, because that's just my, that's my, that's my nature and personality. If it's somebody who really wants to be a combat soldier, he's the person who scares me most. The person who, who um, could benefit from working in intelligence or working in the high-tech sector or in social work, you get paid, you come out with, you get a little bit of money, you get some great experiences, you learn, you get to know other Israelis, you get to know, actual, like meaning Jewish Israelis. If you're not Jewish, that's why I'm a big believer in the army. But I'm, I'm the total minority in this. Everyone criticizes me for it. So. How did the Haredim manage to get these exemptions from participating in society effectively? Do, tradition, Political, yeah, it's from the beginning. Um, so when the state was formed, the, I think it was from 1948, if I remember my poli-sci class from 15 years ago, they, for the Haredim at the time, who were maybe 5% of the population, if I remember correctly, to, to support the idea of the Israeli government. They weren't necessarily Zionist, but they were, support, they were bought off by saying, okay, well, we're not going to serve in the army and you leave us, you subsidize our schools where we only teach religious subjects. They don't teach secular subjects. Even now they don't learn math, science. These Some don't, some do not. There was, oh, if I remember correctly, I think there was a loss and they had to, but a lot of them still do not. They don't learn English or math, Some, but some do and some want to, absolutely. But from the beginning, it was this idea of... Um, of compromise of okay you support having a government you don't go against us this idea of having a, having a state and okay we'll pay you off a bit and then in the 80s i think it was they they caught on that if they actually joined the government meaning they sat in the government and formed the coalition they could get even more money for their schools so that's been the case since the 80s are they actually are they pro israel as an entity or as a state what is their stance in terms of zionism and israel Israeli independence, or do they have opinions, or is it just we cooperate with whoever's the government of the time? What what is their stance in that? So it's it's moved from my understanding. So at the beginning of the state, it was they were I would say they're anti-Zionist. You could definitely categorize them as that, and then it became very neutral on Zionism. And I would say even now they're actually pretty Zionist. They're more right-wing than they ever were. Being part of right-wing coalitions, the what they view on the news and see worldview of let me give you a little background on what i mean is jewish worldview in general is the world is against us everyone hates us they hate us because we're jews they're always going to rise up against us it's in the bible it's in the talmud 
It's in history. You look at the Inquisition, you look at Hitler. It's just a repeating story of they always hate us and they come for us at some point until the Messiah comes, according to them. It's very easy when you're dealing with the Palestinians to sort of see they're just another version of someone who hates us. So uh, officially, they're sort of neutral on things political and when it comes to, let's say, the Palestinians and and self-government or um, Zionism. But really, they're kind of, they tend to be a little bit right-wing in their, in their views when you speak to them one-on-one. And even when you hear, like, for example, if you go to hear the rabbi speak, they don't speak a lot openly against Palestinians, but it'll come up. But within that framework of, see, everyone's against us, nobody likes us, they're just another version of this. So, so it works out well for things like Likud governments who can easily have them on their side. On the other hand, I'll just say the labor government under uh, Rabin and under Oslo also had them supporting Oslo. So they're a little, they're a little flexible on this. Uh, and that is also part of the religious way of, of, of seeing things that, you know, so there are times you can compromise on certain things. Maybe not on giving up biblical Israel. <laughs> they weren't real happy on that. But if, it, if you can give them a good argument of if it's going to preserve life, Jewish life, then yes, you could give that argument. So it's a little bit, there's sort of a semi, you know, on a neutral, flexible framework there. Do they see secular or maybe less religiously conservative Jews as traitors? Or how do they, do they view them as fellow kin, but just, oh, yeah. they're just not yeah, holding yeah. up the law? Of course. Um, there's even when I tell people I'm an atheist, religious orthodox people and i tell them i'm an atheist they say no no no, no, you're not an atheist there's no such thing as an atheist you believe you just don't know you believe and i'll say no no no. i know i don't believe i definitely don't believe and they go no 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 no. you believe do you ever say oh thank god and i'll say well yeah but it's a phrase and they'll say so you believe you believe because they just they need to to in judaism this is a a quirk of judaism judaism is technically a tribe it's not even a religion it's really a tribe and within it, you can't really leave the tribe. So even if I started to believe that Jesus is my savior or Muhammad is the prophet and he's the final prophet, I'm still a Jew according to Judaism, according to the, how mainstream Orthodox Judaism works. Yeah, of course, there's always some people that they'll claim that he's not really a Jew. He's, it's interesting because they both claim that. And then in some of those communities, mostly in the Ashkenazi parts, if you don't come from a dynasty of Orthodox, meaning you have to make sure there's no converts in your line, you can't get married to them. Or if I was, let's say, a convert, I can only marry another convert in their view. Okay. So there, it's a little hypocritical. On the one hand, a Jew is always a Jew. On the other hand, <laughs> they also do this. But overall, they don't, it doesn't matter if I'm a communist, left-wing, anti-Zionist Jew in Israel, I'm still a Jew. It doesn't matter. And maybe we'll finish off. You mentioned Arab-Israelis earlier. And sometimes people, I think from the outside, just look at it as two binary groups, the Israelis who are Jewish, Palestinians who are Muslim, maybe some Christians. But there's also the group Israeli-Arabs they're Druze, they're Christian. Could you tell us about the Israeli Arabs and their views? So if you look, there's lots of Palestinian groups. I mean, that's one of the tragedies of being Palestinian is that, you know, if you're Palestinian in Lebanon, you're Palestinian in Ramallah, or a Palestinian in Haifa, you're all going to have very different views. And there's also a lot of, an, uh, Palestinian is also very tribal, being a Palestinian. It's not a tribe, it's not a centralized tribe. It's one thing um, Palestinians will tell me Sometimes there's a little bit of jealousy about how Israelis are very unified in a lot of things. There's a lot of divisions in Israeli society, 
but we're very unified on a lot of things. Um, I'll, I'll give Jews that. Um, whereas Palestinians are very, on some things they're unified, but on a lot they're not. So, for example, uh, I remember being in Bethlehem and seeing this woman who I was sure was an Israeli Jew. And then she spoke Arabic, and I thought, well, this is weird, just the way she was dressed. And because Israeli Jews don't go to Bethlehem, so I thought it was odd. She turned to me in Hebrew and said something about, you know, we, meaning you and me, we're different than these people. And I was actually kind of touched. I was like, wow, she sees us as the same people. That's so sweet. But then I thought, that's so weird because you're both Palestinian. She's a Muslim Palestinian from Haifa. And, he, and the guy I was talking to is a, uh, is a Muslim Palestinian from Bethlehem. You're supposed to be the same people. There's a way to sort of say, I'm part of your group. And I'm sure if she was speaking in Arabic, she would do the exact same opposite to him, but it doesn't matter. There, is, there are some differences. There is a lot more uh, education and money within uh, Arab Israelis who are Palestinian. They see themselves as different. They see themselves as higher class. They see themselves as uh, more refined, as wealthier. They also very much, obviously, feel very badly for their brothers who are in the West Bank. That could have been them. It just historical circumstances of living in this uh, limbo. Yeah, it really depends. And it also depends on who you're speaking to. You can get Arab Israelis. I keep using the word Arab Israeli just to distinguish them from Palestinians in the West Bank. I absolutely know they're Palestinian. I see them as the same cultural group. Absolutely. So there's a lot of divisions within, within them. The Druze within northern Israel, oh. they live in Galilee. And not a lot of people know much about them unless you live in the region. There's the Druze in Lebanon who are very Lebanese. There's the Druze in Syria, Jabal Druze. And then there's the Druze within what's now Israel. They're a very interesting group within Israeli society and I suppose from a Palestinian perspective as well. Because as you said, they could have been possibly, depending on your perspective, should be Palestinian. But they're wholeheartedly part of Israeli society. And then there's another group in the Golan Heights. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so there's lots of, um, in the Middle East, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of groups. And each one is a different tribe, and each one does different things in how they react politically. So the majority of Christians and Muslims from the river to the sea are culturally more or less Palestinian. There's a lot of Arab Israelis who will say they're Arab Israelis, or they're, they're Muslim Israelis, or they're Christian. There's lots of, depending on who they're speaking to, they'll define themselves in a different way. When it comes to Druze, Druze are an interesting group. They were an offshoot of Islam who were oppressed. But as, you know, the, the world developed a little bit more, they came more and more in contact with other Sunni groups and other, and other groups in general, Christians. So they developed this philosophy of they don't believe in their own independence. They believe in being loyal to the state that they're in. So when states were being formed in the 40s, the, the Druze in Lebanon or in Syria or in Israel they would declare their loyalty to that country. And because there are no Druze in the West Bank, there are Israeli Druze, there are Lebanese Druze, there are Syrian Druze. I think that's it. No, there's a few uh, Jordanian Druze. They will even claim they will go to war against each other. So if the the Israeli Defense Forces is fighting the uh, Lebanese army and there are Druze in both of those armies, they will fight each other, according to what they say. They very much integrate more than, or they traditionally integrated more than Arab Israelis did. Although Arab Israelis have caught up, uh, absolutely, in terms of integrating into Jewish societies, more or less. So they serve in the army. They tend to live in smaller villages a little bit further from the center of the country. So 
they're not that, you know, you're not going to find a lot of Druze in Tel Aviv, although I've met one or two, but it's not real common. But there's also a lot of complaints because they're Arabs. They speak Arabic. They have Arab culture, very, very similar, almost the same as Palestinians. They won't define themselves as Palestinian, although I've met one or two who will for their own political reasons. But they also, because they're closer to Palestinians and let's say a Jew who came from Morocco, they will they'll have more sympathy a little bit for the Palestinians sometimes. They understand the Arab culture of Palestinians a little bit more than the Jews in Israel. By the way, that's a good opportunity to say that the majority of Israeli Jews are actually Jews who come from the Middle East, from Morocco and Iraq and Syria, Yemen. And you would think that they would understand Arab culture even more, but there's a whole other philosophy going on within Israeli Jewish culture which has to do with the Middle Eastern mentality of my tribe rules over you. So they tend to ignore the fact that they actually understand Arab culture and they use it for their own benefits to control. But that's a whole different subject. To finish off, within the Golan Heights, I believe there's different mentalities that lay among the Druze community because of their history, very recent history. Yeah, so Israel was established in 1948 and then the Golan was conquered in 1967. So there was 20 years there of... Druze becoming part of the Israeli system. And the, Go- the Golan Druze still see themselves as Syrian because they assume that, that the Golan will go back to Syria. Up until Syria fell apart, I could kind of understand that. Now I, I'm not sure I understand that mentality, but okay, I mean, they're free to do what they want. They are, by the way, um, so is- Israeli Druze in the north of Israel have citizenship from the beginning, I think 1948, 1950, from that point. Golan Druze were given the option, like uh, East Jerusalem Palestinians, where they have an Israeli ID, but if they want uh, citizenship, they can, but they don't have to get. So there, again, it was that compromise mentality. So there are some that do get it, uh, Golan Druze, who will get the Israeli passport. They're a little quiet about it because it's still taboo. But in terms of when I go to the Golan Heights and I meet with Druze people, they're all working in Jewish places. All of their friends are Jews, Israeli Jews. And they speak fluent Hebrew. They go to Israeli universities. So they're living the exact same life as an Israeli Druze who gives loyalty to the state. They'll just still claim that they're Syrian because what happens if they end up going back to Syria? They're afraid that they're going to be slaughtered by the Syrians. So that's, I assume, the reason. But Do they pledge allegiance? I don't know how familiar you are with this, but they pledge allegiance to the state of Syria. Does that include the current president, Bashar al-Assad, or is that... An area you're, an area I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. And I haven't been there in a while. So yeah, that's a good question to ask them. I don't know to find out. So definitely, I know it was, but in, in currently, I mean, from what's been going on in Syria for years, I don't know. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's just because I live three hours from the Golan and I don't have a car. That- when do you think you'll be able to get back on the road again? And- oh, I wish. Well, because of COVID, we can't ask anyone any questions. We were on lockdown and we'll be on lockdown a little bit again. Uh, they've loosened up on our lockdown so I have high blood pressure, so I'm, I'm afraid of dying. Um, I'll judge in the next few weeks on, you know, if there's another outbreak here. And if there isn't and we wear masks and it seems to be stabilized, meaning your chances of getting it are pretty low, then I'll go back to asking. And then I really hope uh, I'll be going to all these places. Thanks very much, Corey. That was really informative. And it's always good to get perspectives from the region. Sometimes we have everybody throwing out their opinions from either side and they don't live in the region. So it's good to always get, yeah. get it from the horse. I absolutely encourage you to reach out to other Israelis and Palestinians and ask them because everyone, you're going to get a very different view. That's something that's great about this place. Everyone's going to give you their own opinion and sure it's the opinion of everyone. So. Thank you very much, Corey. Have a good evening. You're very welcome. You too. Thanks so much.
And that's it for my first podcast and my first interview with Corey Gilschuster. And thank you to him for his time. And thanks to you, the listeners. I'll be in touch again with my next podcast. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and goodbye.